0: Let's go to Matthew 18 this evening. There were some handouts out there on the table back there. I um, don't know if you grabbed any of those, but if you want to grab one on the way out, you don't have to grab one now. You can just have it as a review uh, if you'd like. Uh, this is a text that uh, has been very helpful to me in helping others deal with this issue of forgiveness and restoration. And uh, it's, oh, of course, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Very short text, very profound, uh, a lot of... Richness contained here. Let's just read through these verses and then we'll uh, open in prayer. So Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15 here. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church... But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, the next few verses aren't a part of my text, but let's read those that go along with it. Uh, Surely I say to you, whatsoever you bind on earth, or whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven... For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Father, I pray that you'd open up this passage for us. May we gain some insight and may it truly help us when we deal with this, uh, with the issue of um, offenses and may it always result in a reconciliation that pleases Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. All right, just kind of as a little throwaway point, verse 20. We, we often use this verse about the two or three gathered in my name to... It generally comes up when you have a service or a meeting and only a few people show up, right? In other words, that's when we often mention that. And it is true, of course, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. But, of course, we know that when we study a passage, we always have to study it in its context, because a text without a context is a pretext, right? You've heard that before. You've got to have a context for your text. The context of this particular verse is in the context of what we commonly call church. Discipline or reconciliation, forgiveness, you know, something in that that idea. And so when Jesus says where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst, the promise, I believe, based on the context, is that whenever the church deals with the church disciplinary type of matter, Jesus is saying, I'm there with you. I am there helping you. I am there supporting you. I am there as you do my will in dealing with offenses and conflicts and, and sin within the body of the believers. And that's meant to be an encouragement that. Um, Even if it's only a few people dealing with the sin, so long as they're proceeding according to Christ's uh, revealed plan on the matter, be assured he's there with you. You're not in this alone. As difficult and as painful it may be, uh, he is assuring us of his presence. And that's an encouragement. Well, this passage is really rooted, as I understand this after studying it, is rooted in one quality of God, and that is holiness. It's rooted in the principle that uh, the Christ wants his his body of believers, he calls them the Ecclesia there in verse seventeen, the Church, the called out ones He wants that body of believers to be pure and and that 's holy to be free from sin you know humanly we know that 's impossible, but to uh, to the degree that we can address it and deal with it uh, that we 're not perpetuating sin in our midst and that we're not allowing sin to go unchecked or at least not undealt with and so god wants us to be holy peter tells us that in his epistle because he is holy and uh that would be that would expand not only from our own selves individually but also into the body of the believers Uh, and i think a lot of this deals also with what i profess and what i carry out and uh If you've ever done any study of um, doctrinal statements, and even if you've been in the corporate world and you've studied policy manuals, you know that very often what the policy manual says and what we actually do are very different. Isn't that true? I mean, because why? Because it takes enforcement, and that's never fun, having to enforce rules and laws. It gets people upset, it causes problems, nobody likes to do that. But everyone's got a policy manual, right? Uh, I remember dealing with some missionary agencies years ago, and and everything that they said they would do in their policy manual, their doctrinal statement, their covenant and everything was great, but what was actually happening on the field was very different from what they said was going to happen, and of course that can happen in churches too. We say we're going to take a stand against sin, we say we're going to do the right thing, we say we're going to please God in all of our actions, but sometimes it's just plain hard to do that. And it's easy to kind of mm, maybe leave that for somebody else or we'll let some time go by and not deal with it at all. And, of course, what Jesus says here is very different from that kind of a philosophy. Uh, that is, we, and as we were talking in Sunday school this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We have to deal with sin seriously. Jesus in that passage in Matthew, Mark 9 says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Not talking about literally dismembering yourself, but dealing with sin seriously. Perform a sinectomy whenever it crops up, because it will only get worse. It will only grow. Feet, eyeball, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, hyperbole, he's using there. So, so in this passage, I see a similar mindset, where we to deal with sin uh, seriously and take it uh, seriously as Christ does. Uh, And then one other thing we have to remember as we go into this passage here is that the whole purpose of these words is not to punish. The purpose of these words is to bring about reconciliation. That is the primary goal from the very beginning to the very end. Even when you get to the point of treating them like a heathen and a tax collector, the point is reconciliation, never punishment or uh, judgment or sentencing or anything like that. Uh, you see, when you sentence someone, you're basically done with that person. You sentence them. You've judged them. They're they're, they're condemned and they're done. We don't have to deal with this anymore. But in this passage, uh, as we'll talk at the end of my message to you tonight, it's open-ended. It's open-ended. And I'll describe, talk about that later. Whereas the sentencing is final. You're done. I never want to see you again. You're, we're finished. Uh, this is very different than that. Well, God, I think, shows us in the book of Acts how he... Sets the example for us, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Whenever sin occurred in the camp, near the very beginning of the entity there, God dealt with it fairly severely. Um, Sin of Achan when at the Battle of Jericho, partook of the forbidden goods that were dedicated to God, first fruits and all that. He took it in wedges of gold, wedges of silver, a Babylonian garment, hid them in the floor of his tent. What happened? Uh, It brought about great tragedy on the nation in their battle against Ai. Many men died. So he was brought before the Lord. You know, they did the lots, and and it it fell on Achan and his family, and he and his whole family was burned with fire and their animals. And uh, the famous words of Joshua, You have troubled Israel, the Lord shall trouble you. Uh, So severely dealt with at the very beginning as a... Maybe an example for everyone to remember, sin is serious, God takes it seriously. In the New Testament, we have a very similar thing with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where they're lying to God about what they gave in order to have, burn the candle at both ends, so to speak, have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to be known as people who gave all of the sale of their house to the Lord, but in fact, they wanted to actually keep a part of it for themselves. So they wanted to be known as sacrificially giving like Barnabas had done. But in fact, they were keeping part of it back. And so what happened to them? God took their lives, both husband and wife. All right, so we know God takes sin severely, uh, takes it seriously, deals with it severely. And in those cases, we, we're reminded at the beginning of the church, the, kind of the beginning of the entity of, known as Israel, God shows them it's serious. Don't mess around with this. Take it seriously. That doesn't mean just because we're not dropping dead every time we tell a lie uh, that God doesn't take it seriously. Amen to that, right? (laughs) But he still does take it seriously, and it's only by his grace and mercy that we're not falling down like flies, right? Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, God disciplined himself uh, believers who had not regarded the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God disciplined them by making them sick and then eventually causing their death. In 1 John 5, 16 and 17, I believe that passage is talking about believers who are reaping the, uh, the chastening hand of God of death. They're dying and going home to be with the Lord because of their sinful lifestyle. I believe they were believers, but God took them home because they were not repenting of their sin. So how foolish it is to say, I'm, if you do this, this is what's going to happen, but then when they do that, we don't do anything. That never works in parenting. We know that, right, parents? If you say, you know, you better be in bed in 10 minutes or else, and then it's 20 minutes later, and you say, you better be in bed in another 10 minutes or else, what, what do they learn? They learn, obviously, that it's never coming. You know, we've seen that. It's always other parents, not us, though, right? It's always the other parents who do that. We never do that, right? And <laughs> uh, that doesn't work in the classroom, Teacher has rules, this is not going to, this better not happen if it does, and if it's never enforced, the kids obviously will walk all over you. Corporations, I think, in a similar way. Policy manuals, this is going to happen, but if it's never enforced, it just becomes a joke. So the hard part of all of these things is actually having the courage and the boldness to actually do what you say you're going to do. Even if it means being perceived as the bad guy. So what does Jesus have to say about dealing with sin? In this passage, I see three facets. If you've got the notes, um, we've got the people in the confrontation, we've got the purpose of the confrontation, and we've got the process of the confrontation. All alliterated for you (laughs) so you can remember all that. People, purpose, and process. Let's take a look first at the people. We have two people involved in verse 15. We have the offender and the offended. The offender and the offended. Let's start with the offender. Uh, He's called a brother. That means a fellow believer, male or female. All right? We're dealing with believers here in this text. And then we see see the word sins. That's the Greek word hamartana, which is common throughout the New Testament. It means missing the mark, the archer shooting the arrow... It's not, the arrow, it's not that the arrow misses the target so much as it means the arrow falls short of the target. It doesn't even get to the target so bad. It's such a horrible shot. It doesn't even get near the target. Well, that's a word for sin because sin is our inability to reach God's standard of holiness. It's not like we overshoot it or we miss God's standard. We don't even get close to it. And that's the idea here. So this is a real sin, a genuine sin uh, that I believe the context would mean something that would also be a sin against God. Not that he dipped his potato chip twice and then ate, you know, you know a social blunder. Not that kind of thing. Uh, not that um, it's maybe uh, what I might call an different interpretation that you have to get in a fuss about. For example, somebody might come away from a sermon and say, you know, this pastor says the wise men weren't at the nativity scene, and my pastor told me that they were, and get all bent out of shape over that kind of thing. I'm not sure that just varying interpretations are a reason for calling it sin here. That's that kind of thing. Uh, or even traditions. You know, our church would never do something like that, but they do that, you know, and get offended about that kind of thing. My grandmother was was raised Methodist, and uh, the Methodists are very careful about the the altar area, they call it. Some of you been in it. Some churches have, you know, it's a very sacred place. You don't mess around up here, okay? Uh, you can do whatever you want back in there, but don't mess with this place up here, right? And uh, my grandmother, you know, when, when we would, de- when they would decorate the uh, communion table for like Fourth of July flags and, you know, stuff like that it was very offensive to her that they would mess with the communion table. <laughs> and one, one Sunday, it was before VBS, the pastor came out dressed like a big gorilla. Big gorilla suit and everything. And I thought my grandmother was going to hit the floor that Sunday. Um, I don't think she ever forgot that. But we're not talking about this kind of thing, All right. Uh, we're not talking about personal differences and opinions. We're talking about real sin that has to be dealt with. And that's important to remember. So this brother here has maligned, perhaps, abused, slandered, deceived, cheated, or in some way personally harmed another believer, a brother or sister in Christ. That's a genuine sin. Um, notice the phrase, against you. Against you. Um, again, I think that emphasizes one a couple points. One is that you're the believer he's talking to. He's talking to his, his disciples. So it's a believer against a believer. That's the context of this passage. We're dealing with professing Christians. We're dealing with people who claim to follow Christ and dwell by the Spirit. And, um, and there's always hope. There's always, always hope for reconciliation when you've got two believers uh, that are uh, working together in this matter. A second thing here is that in the sense of against you, I think it's important to remember that when there's a sin between one brother and another brother, it does affect all of us if it's not reconciled eventually. Aiken's sin didn't affect just him. In our sense of justice, only he should have been burnt and whatever. But it was his whole family and his children and their animals. Everything he owned. Uh, and in that uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, make an example kind of a scenario, it affected a lot more than just Aiken. And it it hurts us to read something like that. But in a real sense, all sin affects us in the body of Christ. And so we we want want each other to deal with it when we can, uh, rather than let it get to the point where it just begins to destroy the work of God. All right, so that's the offender. The offender. Um, Question. Can he just ignore this and just let God deal with him? Can he just let it, you know, can, you know... I would say no, because the word is sin. We can't ignore sin. We have to deal with sin. Uh, If something has the potential of of destroying and harming or dividing the body, it has to be dealt with uh, lovingly, graciously, um, in the spirit of Christ, but also seriously, and to take care of it. Uh, Secondly, notice the offended. The offended. This is is the one who has been hurt in some way. Jesus tells him, And we talked about this last Sunday night. You, the one who's been offended, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I think the King James says reprove. Anybody have the KJV with you there? I think it's the word reprove. It might be the New American Standard. But um, the idea is to go to him with the point of bringing it to light. That's the verb there. Uh, To tell him. To bring it to light. To air it out. So that and the, the the way the syntax and the verb works together in this in this phrase is that the offender cannot escape knowing what he did. And so you're not making these little subtle hints. You're not making these little innuendos. You're saying here's what happened. It's very clear, and he can't deny what you're saying anyway he might deny that he did it she did it but he can't deny this is what is bothering you about you're bringing the whole thing to light from your perspective and so yes the person who was offended is really the best person to initiate the reconciliation because only he can convey the true sense of hurt or pain or or whatever the injury was most clearly and so he goes to them notice it doesn't involve church leaders at this level, it's just the person, the two people involved. It's just those two. Uh, notice the phrase, the word alone. Go to him alone. That means one on one. Um, if, the, if the confession is secured and reconciliation is made, it never has to go beyond those two people. And really, it never should, because if if forgiveness is is given and granted, and then the re- relationship is restored, no one else ever needs to know about that. Not that we're hiding some deep, dark secret. We don't, you know, like we're skeletons in the closet. But it's nobody else's business. We had a problem. We dealt with it. Praise God. We're, we're back on track as the Lord wants us to do and to, to be. So I think that's an important. That alone is an important element there. The problem is we don't do it this way. Human nature does what? Somebody's hurt me. What do I want to do? Yeah, I am going to go sue them maybe. Yeah, I want to get everybody else involved in it. And let them know that how much this person hurt me. How dare they? How could they? And so we bring others in. And that aggravates a problem in this regard. I've seen it so many times. Other people begin taking offense for the offended person. Don't they? People start taking sides, in a sense. So, oh, they did that to you? Oh, dirty rat. And now they're on your team, and now they're offended. Now the problem is this. The more people that begin taking offense, they weren't offended, but they're taking your offense upon themselves. Now how do you, how do you restore all those relationships? You never can. I don't think you can, because you don't know how many people know about it. You don't know how many people have taken offense. Let's so, say, so I'll come to you and say, he told me, and I'm offended, and let's deal with this. Um, And so it makes the reconciliation process from a human perspective, not from God's, but from a human perspective, impossible. Because now you've broadened the playing field to include so many people that you've gone so far beyond this him and you alone that it can never be resolved. Some of these people will die hating you for what you did to that brother. They'll never get over that. Whether it was true or not, they'll, they'll believe it. And so... A second element of this is um, when you spread it to other people rather than going to him alone as Jesus says, um, when you finally do go to that person, if you ever do, go to that person to reconcile it, now the person's heard already that you've been telling all these people about it and he doesn't believe your motives now because it looks like all you want to do is destroy him and hurt him and slander him for something you never even gave him a chance to say he was sorry for. You see what I'm saying? So now, you are not credible. I really want to restore a relationship. Well, yeah? Well, why did you go tell all these people about this then? If you really cared about our relationship? You you seem deceptive. You're playing a game. You know, you understand what I'm saying? So if you don't deal with it one-on-one, multiple problems begin to arise that make it nearly impossible from a human perspective. Not from God. God can do anything. But from our perspective, humanly speaking, it becomes almost impossible to repair. Too much collateral damage has been done. So it's always best to do what Jesus says. Go to that person alone and um, make it right his way. Well, those are the people in the confrontation. Let's talk about the purpose of the confrontation. The last part of verse 15. In the notes, I've got A, B, and C. You know, how do you divide a verse up into A, B, and C? But you kind of get the general idea. The last sentence. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. That is the purpose of the whole process, gaining your brother or or sister. That's the point. That's always the point from beginning to end, even if it ends with the church practicing excommunication or disfellowshipping, whatever you want to call it. The whole point is always and always should be to gain your brother back. Um, one, One translation has win. You have won your brother and the the greek term for that is to gain or profit often in a financial sense so it's like you've just dug up buried treasure and it's you've got this you've won something wonderful and it feels even better than the relationship was before because you've worked your way through this and you've restored the relationship, and the relationship is now stronger than it had been before. It's like a broken bone. When it mends, that particular place of the break is stronger than it ever been before because of the extra tissue around there. And so the relationship, when it's been mended properly, it's stronger than it ever had been before, and it's going to withstand uh, any future insults in a better way than it could have the first time around. And so that's the idea. You've won him. You've gained your brother. So the goal is not to exact vengeance. It's not to punish. It's not punitive. It's to restore. Uh, I like Proverbs 11.30, which says, He that winneth souls is wise. And we often apply that to evangelism. But the idea is, when somebody goes to another person and persuades him, and he comes around back on the right path, that's a wise person. And that's a blessed person, Solomon says. He, that can, he can, it can persuade people to turn from their ways and, and come back to the truth. In Galatians 6.1, believe mature believers once this initial restoration takes place there may be some need for some further mending and the spiritual leaders in the church can help with that but they're not to initiate it uh, Paul says in Galatians 6 1, you that are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness lest you also be tempted so the spiritual leaders have a place in that but not the beginning Maybe later on, as you know, we've reconciled, but we might need a little help here and there. And so the spiritual leaders can help with that and, and restoring that. Now, look at the previous passage in this passage. I think this also helps in the context. Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. Verses 12 through 14. The parable of the what? Lost sheep. There are many points we could take from this, but one that stands out to me is. That God will not rest until the lost one is found and restored. Now, that's kind of how I'm looking at that. Till the lost one is restored. And then he talks about restoration of our brothers and sisters when we have a little bit of distance. A little bit of lostness between us. How to come back together. And so, with this idea of loss and gain, you see the loss in the previous paragraph, and you see the word gain in the end of verse 15 loss and gain. Loss and gain. We can all relate to that, especially financial loss and gain. That hurts, it's painful. And uh, we, we hate to think of that kind of thing. But let me ask you this what would you do to regain a loss? I bet you can think of a time when you really searched way too much, spent way too much time looking for something that you could have easily replaced. Maybe had sentimental value. Um, I had an I have an aunt uh, named Linda who would not rest until she'd balanced her checkbook to the penny. If there was one penny missing, she would not let it go until she found where that penny was. Well, that's kind of a a search, a, a willingness to go to great extents to recover a, even a penny. Maybe you could give some stories about that, how you would expend a lot of energy to regain something. And, of course, you probably know where I'm going. If we would spend that much time and energy to regain a few bucks here and there that we might have lost, um, misplaced a 20 or whatever, how much time would we invest to regain our brother? Would would it even involve a, a phone call? Would we take the time... To so just dial a phone number to regain, perhaps, a brother or sister. To win that person back. Maybe a note, uh, an encouraging comment, and a card. I think we should make that the number one priority. That's the point. That's the whole purpose of the confrontation, is restoration. And then finally, the process of the confrontation. That's the one we always think about. But the process from this point on, Involves a negative response. Okay, so verse 15 is hey, that's the human reality. It's a human, uh, I'm sorry, the divine ideal. All right, this problem happens. Uh, offended person goes, tells him his fault, his sin between the two of them. He hears him and he's gained him. He, he hears, implies, I'm sorry. I understand, I want to make this right. I didn't mean to do that, or this is what I intended, blah, blah, blah. It works out. We understand each other now, and you've gained your brother back. It was a total misunderstanding. Or if it was deliberate, uh, I'm sorry, it was wrong. I don't know what I was thinking about, but it's it's been dealt with. But the the rest of the passage deals with if he will not hear or pay attention and respond. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now at this point, the circle is gradually opening up more, isn't it? Now we're dealing with two or more people, well, one or two more people joining the two initial offender and offended people. And the purpose, based on many Old Testament passages, is that there may be established. This is where you start taking notes. This is where you start writing things down. Okay? The initial confrontation. With, I was praying and God would bless and it would turn out right. Didn't end the way I was hoping. And now you need to start writing some things down. You can, now you take someone with you. Doesn't have to be the church leader. Can be. Doesn't have to be. And you go and, and appeal again uh, to restore fellowship. And this is where the circle begins to open a little bit. But he doesn't listen. No restoration takes place. And you begin to ask yourself, why didn't this person respond the way I was hoping? Did I come on too forcefully? Um, Did I not speak the truth in love? Was I too accusatory? Uh, Was it a bad time? Uh, Was this person worn out from a long day at work? Did I not wait and listen to his side of the story? Um, Maybe he wasn't ready to confess, but at least he understands the issue now, and he needs some time to process. There's a lot of variables in here. And I believe in this passage, we need to leave room for time for the person to respond I mean when somebody comes at you kind of strong about something you did wrong you might need some time to process that and I think that's a very good thing that we need time to process hey you need to forgive me right now we got to do this right now right today no that's not what it says but you have to be honest and up front but then you give God time to work in that person's heart and life don't you think that's an important part of it That's the most important part of it. Because if they respond, you don't want them responding just to you. You want them responding to God. And so give God time to work. And so you go to that person. And so I believe between verse 15 and 16, there's a little time there. Give that person time to process. And then between verse 16 and 17, there's a little time there too. Give that person time to respond. I mean, we're not just there to shove someone through this cattle chute. You've got to do it now. you got to do it now. You've got to do it now. You've got to make this right now. Give the people time to process, to think, to pray, and to really do some soul searching. Am I wrong? Did I really do uh, what I'm being charged with or accused of? And in those timely moments where you're giving God time to work, keep your mouth shut. And I mean that. Literally, don't be gabbing to other people about it because you're letting God work in this matter. You're not trying to uh, do what we talked about earlier, get everyone to side with you and, and, and to get uh, all these other people, you know, spreading it out now. They're taking offenses on your behavior. Don't do that. Keep your mouth shut. Let God work. And tell those other witnesses that came with you, you don't talk to anybody about this. Don't talk to anybody about, about this. We're, we want reconciliation to take place and by gossiping about it and blabbing about it, you're only going to make things worse. So keep your mouth shut But keep your heart open to God. Let Him work in your life and in that other person's life. And then finally, verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. But if he refuses even to hear the church, again, there's some time between that first sentence in verse 17 and the second sentence in verse 17. Give them time for God to work. This is a believer. We, We believe this is a professing believer. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. Now, the church, again, in typical Baptist polity in some of the churches I've served in, very often when it gets to the church, it's over. We're simply telling you this person has not responded, and it's over. But I believe that the church needs to have the opportunity also to do what you did in verse 15, what the one or two other guys did in verse 16. The church needs to have the time to say, to make phone calls, to contact the person, and say, look, we're praying for you. We want you to make this thing right. We love you. We want you, to, we want you to respond to the body of Christ in a way that you can stay here, and we can help you and, and, and help you grow. You know, put away your pride. If it's just pride, you know, don't, don't let pride stop you from making things right. If you did wrong, you know, let the church have a chance to talk to this person and win them back. That's the whole purpose of this, isn't it? It's not to judge for a a death knell or a sentencing and say, you know, you're a sentence of life in prison now. When it gets to the church that's nearing the end but it's not the end. When he refuses to hear the church, the body of believers, making phone calls, sending emails, knocking on the door, whatever, when he refuses to listen to the body of Christ all of his fellow believers in the body, he refuses to hear them. Only then does Jesus pronounce this imperative. Let him be to you. That's an imperative command. That's not an option, not a suggestion. You must do this, Jesus says. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, there's a lot of variation on what that means. I believe it means you simply treat that person like someone who needs the gospel. He's obviously not a believer because he's not responding to the believers. He's not responding to God's work in his heart. He's not responding to the seriousness of sin. Treat him like an unsafe person. How do we treat unsafe people? We tell them, never talk to me again or whatever. <laughs> we Leave the state. Get out of my life, whatever. You know, I mean, obviously, if they're, a, if they're not a believer, you don't invite them into your Christian fellowship because we can't have fellowship with unbelievers. We can only have fellowship with believers. But every time there's a contact with this person, now there's an effort to win them back to Christ. Maybe they need the gospel. Maybe they made a false profession. Maybe they weren't a true believer in the first place. The point is, you treat this person as an unbeliever. Because he's obviously acting like one, and so Christ says, treat him like one. He needs the gospel. So the point of this process is not to punish, it is to awaken. When the church says, you are no longer a part of this fellowship as a believer, that is intended to awaken him, or her, to the fact that this is serious. Now, in that culture, they had nowhere else to go. I mean, there was one city in Rome, one city in Corinth, one city in Ephesus, uh, one church in Ephesus, one church in Rome, one church in Corinth. And so there was nowhere else they could go. Today, just go to the church across the town. And they get welcomed in and, and no questions are asked. I've made it a, pro- a pro- policy in my own life as a pastor that when, when people come to join uh, uh, the church that we're part of, want to join our church, one of the first things I'll do is if I know they're coming from another church, then I'll call that pastor. And I want to know one thing. Is this person under church discipline from your church? Did he leave your church or she leave your church in good standing? If the answer is no, they were not responding to the pastor's advice and counsel, and, and, and we either practice church discipline or they were about to be disciplined and they left before it got to the final level, you know, sometimes that happens. A lot of time that happens. Then for me, that's a showstopper. No, you need to make things right with that church and that pastor and that congregation before you. You're welcome to join here, but you have got to do the right thing over there first. And I think that I think that falls into this, um, it, because if if anybody can just leave the church and go join somewhere else, the whole process is is is, is messed up. It doesn't work anymore. Well, forget you guys. I'll just go over here and I can be teaching Sunday school in a week or something like that. You know, there has to be this process of making sure that the that the church's response is taken seriously. And we have to do that. When does this end? I mentioned that at the beginning. When can this end? I mean, it's such a painful thing sometimes. When does it end? I believe it's open-ended. It ends when either the sinning brother repents and is restored, or he dies. I, I believe that's the only two options. In other words, if he doesn't respond the way we want, then we keep on praying for that person to come back. And every chance we have and we see that person, there's a, an outreach of evangelism. Uh, would you come back to Christ? Would you receive Christ as your Savior? Whatever that you sense that need might be. Maybe we've just been playing a game. But it never ends. Any more than our evangelism for the lost ever ends. When do we stop trying to win our loved ones to Christ? We never stop that. We always pray for them. We always want them to come to know Christ. We never give up, of course, until the Lord allows their life on earth to end. So we never give up hope that a lost brother or sister may be regained. Fellowship may be disrupted. Fellowship may be, even be ended, as the Lord suggests in this passage. But we continue to pray and long for this one to be restored uh, to the body of believers, if indeed he was a believer, and if not, that he'll be saved. So that's my take on this passage. I tell you, it's something I, I share all the time in the, in the counseling offices. Um, so many people struggling with unreconciled sin, not able to forgive not able to come to grips with things and and very often trouble in marriage trouble in the home trouble in the spiritual life trouble in issues of purity can often stem back to unresolved conflict maybe many many years ago and the first step is to go back and deal with that as you should have long ago and take care of that thing now if you make the effort and a person rejects you and, and never wants to hear you again hey you've done what you could you've done what you could and uh, one final thought I want to share with you, and that is this. And it involves, uh, it involves uh, um, worshiping, you know. Sometimes people feel that if there's a problem, you know, between them and another brother, they, they shouldn't go to church, they shouldn't, you know, pray because there's this saying, you know, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar. and that, That's not what Jesus is talking about, that if there's, if there's a problem between you and another brother and you've done all you can to try to uh, address that issue... It doesn't mean you have to stay home from church and not worship God. That you're, you're somehow in this second place. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes feel that way. People sometimes feel that way. That I, I'm not worthy to teach a class or I'm not worthy to do this or that because I haven't been able to resolve this. I've tried, but he won't listen or she won't respond. That doesn't mean you have to give up serving the Lord. I just want to put that out there because I think a lot of people do struggle with that. And... Uh, If your heart is right and you want to do right and you've tried to do right and you're in this vacuum between the reconciliation and making the effort, you keep serving and doing right. That's what God wants you to do. You keep on serving. You keep on praying. You keep on uh, attending church and serving in the church as God has led you to do that. Keep on walking with the Lord and keep praying that God will bring about the change in that relationship. And he does change relationships. He does it all the time. And uh, it's, this is something we all struggle with, whether we talk about it out loud or not. It's something we can all relate to, I think. But that's something that's been a part of my ministry, most of my pastor's uh, ministry anyway, just helping people with this matter. We do, think God's, we do things God's way. It always works out, doesn't it? Eventually, it always works out. And uh, we have to trust that and believe that. Uh, as hard as it may be sometimes. If uh, you're ever in a situation need some help in this area, you know, and you want to solicit, someone, solicit someone's prayer, you know, you can let them know. I'm dealing with something. Could you just pray about it? You have to go in the details. You know, remember, keep it as small a circle as possible. And uh, let them know you're praying, that you need their prayers. You're going to have a meeting, and I uh, pray that things go well. I don't want to tell you who it's about or what it's about, but just pray that uh, God will work. You know, people can respect that. and. Um, but if people do ask you to do that, don't probe. Oh, is it? What's going on? Well, tell me what's happening here. You know, I really want to know the juice. You know, don't go down that road. Uh, just leave it, leave it nebulous, and just pray. And I think God will really, really honor that. Well, I—do I, um, I did I have a closing song? Did we have one? Or are we done, Vic? I can't remember now.